Will you bow with me before we go into the word this morning? Father, we are handling your word this morning as we do every Sunday. And I pray, of course, that we would not mishandle it. I pray that you would help me not to mishandle it. Lord, I go into this text this morning with a bit of trembling even. Not that these truths that we're speaking about today are any bigger or any smaller than any other truths we've handled in the past, but just because I know that these topics can be changing for a trajectory of someone's life for the rest of his or her life, and it could be a good change and it could be a bad change depending on whether or not the text is obeyed. And so, Father, I pray that you would please help us as we look into your word this morning, and I pray that you would give me grace to preach it rightly, to preach it boldly and lovingly, and give us hearts that are soft, not hearts that have the reflex of wanting to rebel against the truth of the Word of God when we hear it, but hearts that want to and are eager to obey instead. This only comes from you, so I pray, please be gracious and give it this morning, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The sermon this morning is going to be continuing from what we started last week, which is why I titled it, What the Bible Says About Divorce, Part 2, because we've already started this topic last week, and we're not on this topic because of any sort of uh, something that's come up in the church or, or some pet peeve of mine or anything like this. We come to this topic because as walking through the book of Mark, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to walk through it, and every word that Jesus says is important, and we're going to handle it systematically, one after the next. And this is what Jesus happened to be speaking about in Mark chapter 10. We started this conversation, and it's a full and big conversation, even bigger than two sermons. But we're going to continue to walk through it this morning with the part two of this. But we need to begin this message this morning remembering this, remembering Jesus' very first words that we found in the book of Mark. The very first words we hear coming out of Jesus' mouth in the book of Mark. Now, and I want to do this because those words encompass so much of what Jesus says and what Jesus does in this book. And what were those words? They were from Mark 1, Mark 1, 15, where Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. Jesus' arrival is the fulfillment of what God had prophesied in the scriptures through his holy men led by his spirit for so many years. He's now here. The Messiah has now come. And then Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus brings the kingdom of God to man. His works and his words show us what the kingdom of God's like and how to become citizens of it because his works and his words show us what God is like and how to become his children. And then Jesus also says in that text, repent and believe the gospel. The way we enter the kingdom is by repenting and believing the good news, the good news that Jesus makes known to us, the good news that Jesus came to make happen for us. 
Repentance implies that by nature, we were going our own way. Because repentance implies a turning in direction. By nature, we were making our own plans. By nature, we were living how we thought best. And all the while, we were going the wrong way and living destructive lives and didn't even realize that the heart of our problem was the problem of our heart. Jesus, through his finished work on the cross, through his death, burial, and resurrection, makes the way for sinful man to be saved. He makes the way for sinful man to be reconciled back to God once again. Once we believe, we become children of God, born of the Spirit, and the Lord Jesus teaching, his teachings rather, they become precious to us. That's the one way that you know that you've truly been saved, is you love the words of God. They are precious to you because they're life to you. Just like Paul, no, Peter said, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we see his words like that when we get saved because that's the way God's revealed to us. So we learn the way to live as kingdom citizens. And living as kingdom citizens is often very different and very contrary to what our old sinful nature believes to be the right way, believes to be the way to go. So if you find your will being different from the Lord's revealed will, if you find your desires being contrary to what the Lord desires, well, it's not the Lord who needs to change, is it? It's you and it's me. So what we'll find in today's message may be very contrary to what the culture and what sinful man believes about marriage and what he believes about divorce. But we follow God, not man. Remember that when asked about this topic of divorce, Jesus took the conversation back to the very first Biblical principles of the very first marriage ever. You might remember from last week's sermon, if you were able to be here, if you were able to listen to it, perhaps that Jesus went all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and just quoted text after text after text from Genesis chapter 1 about the first union, about the first marriage, about God's design for marriage. And I found a good quote from Alistair Begg. If you don't know who he is, he's a Scottish minister. I believe he's Scottish. I will not, though I wish I had that accent, I will not mimic his accent while I read his quote, however. (laughs) But he says this about that. The Lord Jesus understood that the stability of society, stability of society, that the security of family living, that the enjoyment of relationships within a marriage was directly tied to the institution of marriage being upheld according to God's design. So when the institution of marriage is overturned, when the Creator's clear statements are rejected, there are ramifications that follow, he said. And everything he said was true. So we ended last time looking at what Jesus told his followers when they asked him in verse 10 of Mark. They asked him about the matter of divorce. And we ended with these two verses from 11 and 12. So look at Mark 10, 11 and 12. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she 
commits adultery. Now, we also talked about how there is a more full recording of everything that Jesus said that day. Matthew gives us even more of what Jesus said that day, and that's common with even how we might give details to one another about a certain event that we see. I might tell you something about that event, and then someone else might recount the same event and give something else. Doesn't mean I left it out intentionally. Just means he remembered something I didn't. And the Lord used that in Matthew, and we get a more full statement of everything that Jesus said that day. Listen to what Jesus said that day in its totality. Whoever, this is from Matthew 19.9. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, this was not, not new for him to say this right here. He actually said the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. The longest recorded sermon that we get of Jesus Christ covering Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. Almost the entire three chapters are just one long sermon. Jesus has already said this in that sermon. He said in Matthew 5, 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is what's been commonly called the exception clause. Because there's no other exception, he's saying, for divorce except for this cause. Now, this, those two words that we translate sexual immorality, they actually just come from one Greek word. And the one Greek word is the word porneia, from where we get the word pornography. Porneia is found roughly 25 times in the Bible. And it's used most often as a general statement, just a general statement that covers any type of illicit sexual activity. Now, there's only one occasion, at least one that I could find, where porneia was used differently than adultery. Only one time where there's a long list of sins and adultery is mentioned, then also Porneia is mentioned, showing a difference there. But every other time that I saw it used, it was more of a general statement to include any and all types of sexual immorality, which would include adultery. For example, there's a lot of times where we get these long lists of avoid these things, Christian. Paul and his epistles, also in the book of Acts, we see this happening many times to avoid lying and avoid a life of theft and then he'll say all these other sins, and then he says, and porneia. Now, if it only refers to sex outside of marriage, what does that mean? He's, he's saying to the ones that are married in that church, but adultery's fine. No, of course not. It's often, very often used as just a blanket statement for any type of illicit sexual activity. And you might be saying, Cohen, why are, you la- why are you laboring that point so much? Well, it's because that even in my study this week, on this topic, getting much deeper into this topic than I even had in the past. It caused me to even change one of my views. I encourage you to study the scriptures deeply. If you have a inkling, if you have a, we might say, hankering for a certain topic at a certain time in your life, study that topic deeply. Maybe take a week or even two or a month and just study it deeply. You may find some things that you didn't know and it may cause you to then say, hmm, well then, maybe I need to adjust what I was thinking about this before. And then it happened to me, even. And I'm glad it did. 
Not a big change, but a change in one of my thoughts. So when the question comes up, however, when the question comes up, Cohen then, okay, I hear this exception clause here that you're talking about and connected with pornea, sexual immorality. Then you're saying that Jesus says it's okay to divorce my husband or my wife who's committed adultery? Is that what you're saying? Well, according to what Jesus says in Matthew, that does seem to be the case, yes. But it does not mean that you have to divorce your wife or divorce your husband who has been unfaithful to you. Let me explain. Yes, number one, there would definitely need to be repentance to God and also forgiveness asked from the spouse who has been wronged. Absolutely. Yes, there probably need to be counseling for this couple to see what was at the root of this desire to even be unfaithful in the marriage. Let's start getting to the layers down, down, down. Let's pull these roots out. And yes, it would probably take years to build complete trust back in the relationship. It probably would. There's no sugarcoating that. When a hurt that deep has been committed, it just doesn't heal overnight. But we have an example of the Lord being patient with Israel, and we have an example of the Lord even receiving Israel back when Israel repents after Israel had played the harlot with other gods and broken covenant with Yahweh. Just one of them. Let's look at this in Judges 2. Judges 2, 16 through 23. Listen to what it says. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside to the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Then we find in the very next chapter, Judges 3, 9, we read this. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. They cried out in repentance. They cried out for help. And God was moved in pity and said, I'll help you. I'll take you back. Now, that's just one example of the people of Israel going wayward, breaking covenant with Yahweh, and going after other gods. And the Bible says, whoring after them. He uses language, uses sexual language to show what this breaking of the covenant is like. It's like cheating on a spouse. We see it again and again. In fact, there's an entire Old Testament book devoted to an example of the Lord taking back his people after they'd been adulterous. It's the book of Hosea. You probably knew exactly which one I was referring to. The entire book is all about that. 
God tells Hosea to marry a woman who's a woman of the night and prone to those tendencies. And he marries her. She is, of course, unfaithful to him. And the Lord tells Hosea to go find her and bring her back and even buy her back. She's gone so deep in those tendencies that not only was she committing adultery, she'd now got herself into slavery in that lifestyle. And Hosea had to purchase her back. So the Lord shows us the example of a patient and forgiving spouse, a willingness to take back the one who's broken covenant. So there is a place for reconciliation when it's possible. And I'm simply making this point just because we do see this exception in the Bible for divorce, but it doesn't mean that you have to divorce, especially if the unfaithful one repents and denounces that behavior and pleads for forgiveness. But if the marital unfaithfulness is present and the repentance isn't, then divorce can be considered. And the believer would not be bound anymore. Well, the other questions naturally arise at this point. One of them being, so is marital unfaithfulness the only scriptural allowance for divorce? That's one question. And then another question would be this. What about remarriage? Is it ever allowed? Especially if divorce because of my spouse being unfaithful. Is remarriage ever allowed? Well, the Apostle Paul addresses both these questions. Thankfully, the Lord doesn't leave us with no clue about these answers. The Apostle Paul addresses both these questions in his first letter to the Corinthians. So turn to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7 is where we're going to be now for the remainder of our sermon. 1 Corinthians 7, you might remember that the church of Corinth was quite a messed up church. (laughs) And so um, because of their so many mess ups, the Apostle Paul addresses so many topics that now help us in our life because they made so many mistakes. And it's always good for us if we learn from other people's mistakes instead of making them ourselves. So the Apostle Paul will help us with some of the implication, implications of what our Lord taught. And he will even expand what the Lord Jesus taught. Let me explain what I mean. So I want to point out a few verses that explain exactly what I was talking about there. I want to explain a few verses that can be a little bit uh, confusing to us if I don't explain them to start off with. But once the explanation comes, you'll see that it was a very simple explanation. Nothing complex about it. So look at verse 10 just to start off with. I want to talk about the Apostle Paul speaking by the authority of God. So look at verse 10 when he says, But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. What's he mean there? Not I, but the Lord. Paul's saying, I'm going to tell you something that doesn't come only from me, but it comes from the Lord. He's referring back to the teachings of the Lord Jesus. When he says that phrase here, the Lord, it's very commonly used for the Lord Jesus. There was 
often a phrase, if he wanted to talk just about God in general, he would use a different phrase. And when he's talking about the Lord Jesus, he would very commonly just say, the Lord. And so when he says, not I, but the Lord, what he means is, Jesus spoke about this topic when he was here on planet Earth. He said something about this. So I'm gonna, he's just basically saying, I'm going to talk now about what, what he said. However, in verse 12, in verse 12, he says, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord. You see that? To the rest, I say this, not the Lord. Now, he doesn't mean this isn't from heaven or uninspired. It simply means I'm not quoting our Lord at this time. That's, that's what he means there. It's, it's a very simple e- explanation, actually. When he speaks that way, he simply means he's teaching about areas of divine revelation, areas our Lord Jesus didn't specifically address. And there's actually many things later revealed in the New Testament that our Lord Jesus didn't address. Lots of things that Jesus didn't specifically talk about that we see later spoken about in other New Testament books. And aren't you thankful for that? It's called, it's what we call progressive revelation. That's why we don't just have the book of Genesis. We have 65 other books too where the Lord revealed things a little bit at a time. He made progress in his revelation, progressive revelation. So Paul's words are no less from God and they're no less inspired. For example, in verse 25 is when he begins to address virgins and Paul says, now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord but I give an opinion as one who by mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. It's coming from Paul as one who's trustworthy, as one who's able to speak the truth of God. And Paul ends this entire chapter with these words, the the very last verse in this chapter, he says, I also have the Spirit of God. So Paul is simply saying that he's teaching us something about God that's definitely from the Spirit trustworthy. So now, to address those two questions I mentioned, should the formerly married remarry? And then secondly, is adultery the only grounds for divorce? Let's talk about that. These would be two categories of uh, formerly married people in verse 8. Look what he says in verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to widows. That's how he starts off. I say to the unmarried and to widows. Because he just started. He'd been in this chapter already talking about single people. And if they can stay single, that would be better for them. Because they can devote more of their attention, more of their time to following the Lord. But he says not everybody has the gift of singleness. Not everybody is able to stay single. And he knows that. And so now he's addressing other people. And he's saying to the unmarried and to widows. So these are two categories of formerly married people. Widows are clearly those who were married, but the spouse died. That's very clear. But who are the unmarried? What does he mean here by unmarried? Because that can be a little clear. Does he mean single people, divorced people? There's ways to be unmarried. But it can't be widows because he's already mentioned those. And there are only two ways to be married and then not to be married. Either your spouse dies or you're divorced. And I'm going to tell you why I believe he's speaking about divorced people here and not just single people. 
he's addressing single people already, but then he addresses single women later on, calling them virgins. He's got a whole section later on just about virgins. These would be not married yet people. And so these people, he puts in a different category. So they're not single virgins who've never been married, and they're not widows. These are unmarried who've formerly been married. I believe that also because the Greek word that he uses there for unmarried in verse 8, when he says, but I say to the unmarried and to widows, we find that exact same Greek word a few verses later used for divorced people. He uses the exact same word. Look at verses 10 and 11. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. Watch this. But if she does leave, divorce, she must remain unmarried. See that word, unmarried? It's the exact same word from verse 8. Or else be reconciled to her husband. And that, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. The unmarried are the formerly married there in verse 8. They are the divorced. So, divorced or widowed people, what are they to do? What are they to do now? Well, we, we find that in verse 8 and 9. Look at verses 8 and 9. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it's good for them if they can remain even as I. He means single. Paul was not married at this point when he wrote this. Was he ever married? Some people think that he possibly was because he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And back then, to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to have a wife, according to what I've studied. And maybe his wife died. We don't know. Maybe they met an exception. Maybe he was never married. It's just not 100% clear. But at this time of writing this letter, he was not married. Okay? And we know that prior to his death, he did not get married. So he died single. So he says, listen, divorced, widowed, he's saying, it's good if you can stay that way. You will be able to devote more of your attention, more of your time to following the Lord, to devoting yourself fully to him. But, he says, I understand that not everybody's able to do that. Look at verse 9. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. If a divorced woman or a widow finds herself longing for a man, wanting a man, being tempted because there is no man, he says, then you better get married. You don't want to fall into that sin. Just get married. Paul even says that to about younger widows in a different portion of Scripture. Just let the younger widows, let them remarry. He knows the tendency of the young. The young want to make babies. <laughs> they do, usually. And so he says, let them remarry. So Paul here is allowing remarriage for the divorce and for widows. Next question is, are there any other grounds for divorce besides just adultery? Are there any other grounds laid out in Scripture? Well, let's look. Let's look at verses 12 through 16. There's a, there's a few other things we're going to talk about here before we get to that, but we are going to get to it. You guys still with me? Okay. Look at verses 12 through 16. I try, yeah, I try to raise my voice up and down. I try to move around the stage. I had speech class in, in college, and 
not in Bible college, but it was the junior college I went to, and they taught us how to do that. Keep people's attention. Guy Posey and I were talking about people that preach just very monosyllabically and just talk so even, never raise their voice up and down. But the Lord still uses those men if, if, if there's scripture involved. Look at verses 12 through 16. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, meaning Jesus didn't have words about this exact topic. The Lord Jesus didn't. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. What this means is, he's saying, okay, now that you've become a Christian, maybe you are a Christian already and your spouse isn't, he's saying, that's no reason to split up. Stay with that husband or stay with that wife, even though he or she is an unbeliever. That's not grounds for a divorce, just because that person is not saved. And he's going to tell us why. One reason why for not splitting up is found in verse 14. Look at this. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. What does that mean? What's he talking about there? If there is one believer in the family and no other Christians, guess what? You are the sole holy influence on that family. You're the only one who possesses the Spirit of God, and therefore, you're the only representative of Jesus Christ in that family. You're the only one speaking the truth of the Word of God to that family. You are a holy, sanctifying influence upon that family. And you're the only one, perhaps. And so he's saying, stay and be Jesus in that There's no reason to split up just because they don't know Jesus. You might bring truth to them that saves them. So stay. You are the holy, sanctifying influence upon that family. Verse 15. Yet, watch this. And this is the other exception. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So this is very specific, though. This is very specific. If you have a believing spouse and a non-believing spouse, and the, be- the non-believing spouse leaves, he or she says, I'm out. I don't want this marriage any longer. He says, you're not bound to stay in that marriage. So there's two exceptions that we see in Scripture, and only two. I call them the two A's. I've even got an image for that for you guys. I call it the two A's. The only two reasons that we find in Scripture for divorce are adultery and abandonment. But it's abandonment by a non-believer. It's very specific. Abandonment by a non-believer of a believer. Those are the only two exceptions we see in Scripture for a right, real, recognized by God, divorce that then would also allow for a right, real, 
remarriage of another believer. Scripture is very clear. God only wants believers to marry believers. That's laid out in multiple locations in Scripture. You are setting yourself up for so much pain, heartache, future trouble, even trouble with your children if that is disobeyed. I would even say possibly trouble for generations to come. Generations. Your great-great-grandchildren might suffer even if you disobey that. Christian, know that. Know that. And as a loving warning on my behalf, someone who's trying to show you the right way. So that's why he says... The brother or sister, meaning brother or sister in Christ, like Christians here, is not under bondage in such cases. Again, that's a very specific case. But I know, I know a man, Christian man, came home one day and found a note and found all of his wife's belongings gone. And in that note, she said, I'm leaving, I'm out, I'm gone. How do you respond to that? He had trouble even responding to that that just happened. You know what he did? He said, he told me, he said, I didn't really know how to respond. I just started cleaning the house. Of course, it was painful and not wanted on his part. But she was a non-Christian and showed herself to be such. And they divorced And later on, this man found another woman in the church that he was attending at that time. And guess what? She had also been divorced, but under different means, under different reasons, rather. Her husband had been unfaithful to her, and she wanted to reconcile the marriage, and he didn't. And they divorced Well, then that man and that woman got married. And I believe that's the marriage that the Lord was pleased with because neither one of them were the ones that were divorcing for sinful reasons where the other two were. And I know them. Well, look at verse 16. We're going on now with that same topic of the husband or the wife having a non-believer who wants to leave. And Paul says, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? What does he mean there? He's basically saying, if the non-believer wants to leave, do not chase him all around the country saying, Oh, please come back. Oh, please come back. If he doesn't want to come back, he's saying, let him leave. You don't know whether your holy, sanctifying influence on him is actually going to save him. Of course, that's what we want, because he just showed that in the previous verses. But he says, but you don't know. You just don't know whether or not you will be able to save that unbelieving husband or whether you will be able to save that unbelieving wife through your godly influence and through speaking the truth and through living like Jesus. You don't know. Let him leave. Don't chase him around the country begging him to come back. 
Well, let me end with this. Mankind thinks he's making great gains and great strides in our day by breaking the bonds of scriptural authority, by rebelling against the word of God and what God has clearly laid out for mankind. Sinful man believes, oh, it is so freeing when you rid yourself of this archaic stuff. It is so backwards and old and we've evolved past it. We are better than this. It is not true. Or is it binding? And they throw it away. And they think they find freedom in doing that. Don't they? He thinks he's truly free when he rebels against the Lord and against his word. But listen to what Proverbs 14, 12 says. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So man's own views about marriage, man's own views about divorce may seem right to him. They may. But where they differ from the word of God, they'll bring ruin. In the end, he'll discover that the trail that he blazed and thinking he was free, he's going to find that the trail he blazed leads only to an eternal blaze. But there's hope. There's hope for rebellious man who knows he's a rebel. There's hope for the one who has destroyed his or her marriage and is truly repentant. There's hope for that person because of what Jesus said with his very first words in Mark. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe the gospel. There is hope even for the worst sinner who has wrecked his marriage or her marriage and harmed his children in the process. There is hope for any individual like that. There's reconciliation to God and sometimes even reconciliation to that spouse. But it's only going to be found through Jesus. Not through your wisdom, but through God's. Amen? Will you bow with me? Father, we thank you for this word. We know many a person is affected by these things. We pray, knowing that we've been affected, Lord, by many other sins. Many of us used to be liars, thieves, drunkards, drug addicts perhaps, extortionists, Lord, you've changed our lives from that. You've forgiven us for those things, those of us who have come to you in repentance and believe that you took the punishment for those sins already. So there's hope also. There's hope also for the adulterer. There's hope also for a wrecked marriage. And we'll look to you for all of our hope. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.